we are in, <coughs> excuse me, the midst of a series called Joyful. And in this series, we're really walking through and studying the book of Philippians to listen to and hopefully garner some knowledge about uh, what the P- Apostle Paul has to say about the subject of joy. And joy is one of the main central themes of the book of Philippians. Sixteen times in just four chapters, just four chapters to the book of, of Philippians. I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't done so already. But just 16 times in this short little book, the Apostle Paul mentions joy or rejoicing, because the, the, the aspect of being filled and the, the, the reality of being filled with joy was something that the Apostle Paul intimately understood. But it's the way in which Paul says that we are filled with joy and that we find that joy that is so subversive and countercultural, not only in Paul's day, uh, but perhaps even more so in our day and age as well. So, for example, I heard a story about two guys that were having dinner, and they both ordered fish, and so the waiter brought out the fish, and it was on one platter. There was a smaller piece, and there was a bigger piece, and the one guy went and grabbed the platter and put the big piece on the plate in front of himself and gave the smaller piece to the other guy, and the other guy said, well, you have some nerve, and the other guy said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you took the big piece for yourself, and you left the small piece for me. And so the guy said, well, what would you have done? And he said, well, I would have given you the big piece and I'd have kept the small piece for myself. And the other guy said, well, good, I've got it. (laughs) You see, it's hard to have joy and for it to stay very long when it's hard to get along with other people. And everybody wants to be happy, right? And almost everyone thinks that the way to get happy is to give the highest priority to the pursuit of their own interests. The problem is you've got over seven and a half billion people on this planet with seven and a half billion wills. Everyone pursuing their own interests and you have a lot of wills colliding into each other even in church. Let me explain what I mean by looking at Ephesians or excuse me Philippians chapter 2. Here's what Paul writes in verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, Paul is in prison when he writes this. And if you were in prison, What would make your joy complete? I can guess for me the first thing would probably be to be out of prison, right? That would be your guess or your uh, conclusion as well. But Paul says what would make my joy complete is to hear that you're getting along with each other. You see, Paul's very request implies that there are a few too many collisions in the church there in Philippi, and it's impeding their joy. And anyone who's lived long enough knows the reality of what I'm going to say next, and that is that joy is a relational challenge. So often it is tied to our relationships, and it is a relational challenge. As I said earlier, and I've said several times throughout this series so far, 16 times in this short letter, we call the book, (coughs) excuse me, of Philippians, Paul mentions joy or rejoicing. But read it closely, and you'll notice that he never mentions that the Philippians had any. Evidently, they were struggling to be of one mind and one spirit 
and like-minded. And you get several hints. For example, a few verses later in the same chapter, in verse 14, Paul says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, generally, you don't have to say don't grumble or argue unless people are grumbling and arguing. And everybody knows you can't create a culture of joy when whining and bickering are tolerated, right? All the moms said amen to that, right? You cannot create that culture of joy. And underneath, apparently, all of this frustration, all this bickering going on in the church is a serious relational breach. And so in chapter 4, <coughs> Paul says this in verses 2 and 3, I plead with Euodi and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. <coughs> yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Okay, so now we're, we're starting to get a little bit of understanding. There's, uh, there's tension in the church in Philippi, and at least part of it is sourced in these two very important influential women who aren't getting along with each other. You ever been in a situation like that? A situation where, you know, because of tension in the family, maybe between exes or between siblings, <coughs> family reunions are just disaster? Certainly, We've all heard of sports teams that imploded because there was divided locker room or <coughs> businesses and part partnerships that, that were separated or dissolved because they just couldn't get along. And churches and families are, are certainly no exception to this. Evidently, it wasn't a doctrinal problem, or Paul would have corrected it, but they've got an issue. Maybe the issue is who has the worst name. I don't know. But whatever it is, Here's what I do know. And underneath their issue was a bigger issue. Neither woman was putting the other above herself. And because they couldn't get along, joy couldn't stay around. Maybe you're in a situation like that right now. Maybe in your family. Maybe in your workplace. <coughs> maybe in your peer group. There's tension. And it's causing joy to be sucked out of the community and out of your own Heart. And maybe what you're thinking right now is, absolutely, preacher, now I want you to tell me how I can change them so I can have more joy. Well, I can't tell you how you can change them, but I can tell you what you can do about you. You need to stop using the ugliest four-letter word in the English language. And you don't have to cover your kids' ears, I promise. I'm going to keep it PG. Uh, it is a word that we use every day, and it's spelled S-E-L-L. F. Self. Self is often the problem, and it steals our joy. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul says, In humility value others above yourselves. Whenever collisions of wills is present, there is humility that is absent. Because the popular wisdom says, do you want to have joy? Then you need to look out for number one. Go after it. Seek it. Make your agenda your highest priority. It's the reason why we have a magazine called Self, but we do not have a magazine called Others. The conventional wisdom is the way to joy is to promote yourself. But real life experience says you get seven and a half billion people with that agenda and you get competition, you get conflict, you get estrangement. And if that's the path that you're taking to joy, I just need to be blunt. You're on a path that God will not 
bless. God will not bless that path with joy. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud <clears throat> but shows favor to the humble. You see, like joy, humility is a choice. Humility is a choice that you and I have. You can clothe yourself with humility or you can leave humility in the closet. But it's a choice. And make no mistake, it is a countercultural, counterintuitive choice because you see, from birth, we've all been unconsciously and sometimes consciously disciplined to let pride be our guide. The natural thing for all of us to do is to look out for our own interests first and usually most. Let me illustrate with just a <coughs> simple little illustration that you probably will experience over the next week or so, at least some of you younger ones. We've all been in group photos, right? You're, you know, everybody smile, we're going to take a group photo. Then what's the first thing you look at after a group photo? Yourself, right? Everybody else can look good in the photo. And if you look bad, that's not a good photo. Do not post that photo. Don't put it on social media. It's a bad photo. If I don't look good, everybody else can look great. But if I don't look good, do not post that photo. That's how the flesh reacts. You see, humility is an intentional mindset. It is an intentional mindset and attitude. Humility is not something that we are born with. It's something we choose to put on. We make the conscious decision to clothe ourselves with humility. And if I've got to be honest with you, I could probably be arrested for indecent exposure sometimes when it comes to that aspect because I struggle with it. And I'm guessing you do too. And two things I think have revealed <clears throat> my tendency to selfishness more than anything else. One is becoming a husband and a father. There's nothing that I can tell young couples, and I know some of you are looking at me like I'm a, a young couple. Marcy and I have been married for 19 years, so we're, we're, we're not newbies in this thing. But compared to some of you, we're, we're, we're lagging behind. But the one, thing, one of the things, or I, I cannot tell young couples anything that, or, that will teach you or prepare you for how selfish you are when it comes to marriage. You, you just, you cannot realize it until you get in it and you start to hopefully look in the mirror and, and see it in yourself. And it doesn't take very long to figure out all the little ways that we get so absorbed with ourselves and what we want and about our own interests <clears throat> without realizing that someone else is sharing this space, sharing my life, sharing their life with, with me. And, and, and just when you think you don't have anything more to learn about humility at that point when it comes to marriage, all you got to do is become a parent, right? Because if you didn't think you knew anything then, then you really don't think you know anything when you become a parent, or at least you maybe find out a lot more. If you think that pride is not a problem that comes from birth, uh, then you have not become a parent. Because it is. It is a parent right from birth. I don't have to teach my kids how to say mine. They learn that very early. I have to discipline them because they won't share. You don't have to teach children to whine and fuss and moan when they don't get their way. You have to teach them to be patient and to wait for someone else, right? Now, I don't say all this to discourage anyone from getting married 
or having kids because getting married and having kids are the two greatest joys of my life outside of me giving my life to Jesus Christ. They, they truly are. And I love my wife and I love my kids with everything that I have. But what I am saying is that God has used close community in my life. And it, it, it doesn't have to be close, you know, like an immediate family. It can be your community group. It can be your friends and family here at church. But God uses community to reveal to us that we are so much more selfish than we think we are. And, and when Paul uses or, uses or says, you know, look to your own or look to the interests of others, do not look to your own interests, look to the interests of others. It's interesting, the word he uses there for look is literally the word scopos. It's where we get the word scope, microscope, telescope, scope on a gun. What does a scope do? It magnifies. It zooms in. And Paul says, that's what it takes. You want to have joy in your community? You guys have got to start zooming in on the interests of others and not just focusing on your own. And so what I would tell you is that perhaps one of the biggest things that has taught me that. Now, I'm still learning. and You can just ask my wife. She's not here this morning, but you can ask her. I'm still learning. I've got a long way to go. But one of the things that has taught me so much how selfish I truly am and to fix my eyes on others instead of myself is, is quite frankly, family and, and community. But perhaps the biggest thing that has revealed it to me is the gospel. Very next verse, verse 5, Paul says this. <clears throat> In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You see, the Bible and the gospel don't just teach us to think about some things when it comes to Jesus. The Bible teaches us to think like Jesus. And then what Paul does next is he quotes a song. It's a popular worship song in the early church and full of doctrinal truths, but Paul isn't quoting the song simply for doctrinal reasons. He's quoting it for ethical reasons because the song is about Jesus. And what Paul is doing here is he's presenting Jesus as our countercultural model because Jesus intentionally took an unnatural path to joy. So let's lead, read the first part of this awesome song, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible here in Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> So continuing in verse 5, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here's what, what Paul says. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the amazing thing, according to that song, is not just the fact that Jesus came our way, but it's the way he came. He, he could have come, as he deserved, in power, majesty, and glory. But instead, he chose a path of, of downward mobility. He chose a path of humility. And, and Paul is telling the church there in Philippi, and telling us as well, that when you model the countercultural, the, the counterintuitive way of Jesus. It will produce fewer collisions. Not, it's not going to solve every problem because we're not perfect, but it will produce fewer collisions and healthier relationships and greater joy. And realize, Jesus did not have to take this path. He chose 
this path. He humbled himself because you do not humble sovereign God. Sovereign God chooses to humble himself. He was obedient to death. Death was Jesus' choice. It's, it's not like, you know, that people decided to, to crucify him and, and Jesus said, I'm, I'm at their mercy. There's, there's nothing I can do. He chose to walk that path. He chose to take that path. It was his choice, not his necessity. You and I must die. We're sinners. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You and I have no choice in the matter. Jesus did not have to die. He chose it. Why? Because he was looking out for our interests. And so only sinful man should die, but only perfect man could die for another. And so God took deity and he poured it into humanity, fully God and fully human, so that he could take our place. Choose to die for us. You know, there's a great passage in a couple of the Gospels where Jesus says that as his disciples, he calls us to, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to carry our cross, and to follow him. But he did not say, you must carry my cross, because only he could carry that cross. His cross had the sin of the world on it, and only sinless, perfect God in the flesh could carry that cross, and he did. He humbled Himself, And here's what the Hebrew writer says in an amazing verse in chapter 12. There, there's so much stuff in this little section, but <clears throat> even especially in this verse, it's just astounding what the Hebrew writer says in verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy? Yes, the joy. The joy of rescuing us, of redeeming us. The joy of putting our interests first so that we could be saved. The joy of knowing that fellowship could be restored, that reconciliation could happen, that we could have a future together with God. For that joy, he died to self so that others could live. And to follow him is to choose the same path. To joy. And so every week what we're doing is we're learning a new way to think, a new way to understand and be filled with joy. And so here's the message in just one sentence, to which you're probably saying, well, if you could have given us this at the beginning, we could have saved a lot of time. But here's the message in just one sentence. To be full of joy, I must empty myself. If you hear nothing else today, to be full of joy, <coughs> you've got to empty yourself. And that sounds crazy. That sounds like the exact opposite, but that's exactly what Scripture is calling us to do. That I'm, if I'm going to be a model Christian, then I have to follow the Christ model and humble myself. And then what Paul does is he gives the church a couple of real-life, in-the-flesh examples of what this looks like right here in chapter 2. <clears throat> For example, look at verses 19 through 22. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, <clears throat> that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. Paul says, I want to show you what this looks like. Think about Timothy. 
He says, now here's a guy that puts the interest of others above his own. That's what I'm talking about. And then Paul talks about a man by the name of Epaphroditus. That's the man the Philippian church actually sent to Paul with the money that they had gathered together to send to Paul. And, and so Epaphroditus actually got sick while he was in Rome and they were worried about him and Paul could have used him. But Paul said, you know what, I'm going to send him back to you to comfort your hearts. Here's what he says in verse 29. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Paul says, you want tension to subside? You want joy to return to church? You've got to start putting the interest of others above yourselves. You've got to choose humility. You've got to choose to empty yourselves like Timothy did, like Epaphroditus did, and quite frankly, like Paul did. Again, Paul is in jail when he's writing this. And Paul could have said, you know what, I, I could use some company here. I, I could use a, a little bit of support and encouragement. Why should I be sending them to you when I could use them here, but Paul practiced what he preached and he put their interests above his own. And so here's the thing. We've got a test. Humility is ultimately a test of faith. Do I trust that the Jesus way is the best way? Night before Jesus died, you remember the story in John chapter 13, Jesus washes all of his disciples' feet. Those who are going to deny him, those who are going to betray him, those who are going to abandon him, he washes all their feet. And then he said, now I'm your teacher, <clears throat> and I've done this for you. I want you to do this for each other. And then he says something in, in verse 17 that it's, it's easy to miss. It's at the end of the section, but it is so critical for us to get. Here's what he says. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. That word blessed, by the way, is where we get the idea of happiness or joy. But notice that Jesus does not say, if you know these things, you will be happy. You will be blessed. The problem with the American church is not an information problem. We have access to more information, more teaching, more knowledge than any generation in history. We do not have an information problem. We have a transformation problem. We know, but we don't always do. Jesus didn't say that knowledge will bring you joy. And while I would encourage you to be in your Bible every single day, just knowing it will not bring you joy. And while I'm glad you're here this morning and listening online, watching online, just hearing me and taking it in will not bring joy. Selfless obedience will bring joy. And we've got a faith test. Do we truly believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about or not? I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Maybe you've got some tension in your life. Maybe you've got a relationship that is not working right now, and it is sucking the joy out of your heart and out of your life. <clears throat> Are you willing to try the Jesus way? You see, joyful people 
empty themselves. They empty themselves of the need to always be right. They empty themselves of the need to be noticed or appreciated. They empty themselves of the need to speak first or have the last word. They empty themselves of the need to get their way or to be vindicated. They empty themselves of the need to say, I'm sorry, second. They empty themselves of the pride that won't say, I forgive, first. They find more joy in becoming less. Because when we step down, Jesus steps in.